This morning, I want to challenge all of us to be honest and open regarding our prayer life. Do we pray? Do we pray sufficiently? Do we pray expecting results? Do we pray in a way that would honor God? I think sometimes we kind of have an idea that we are praying more than we actually are. In fact, I think sometimes we kind of take it just a little bit flippantly. So I want to take a moment this morning kind of challenge us just a little bit about our prayer life. I don't know about you, but I found in my life that praying is hard. Is it not? It's hard. And to take the time is not easy. So hopefully by the end of our message, kind of get a challenge to get kind of back on track with the way God would have us to look at things. I want to read an excerpt from a book by Philip Yancey entitled Prayer. And underneath this particular chapter on pages 14 and 15, he talks about prayer as a modern struggle. So if you would oblige me just for a moment, I want to read just a little bit from that page, 14 and 15. It says, when I listened to public prayers in evangelical churches, I heard people telling God what to do, combined with thinly veiled hints on how others should behave. When I listened to prayers in more liberal churches, I heard calls to action, as if prayer were something to get past so we can get on to the real work of God's kingdom. Hans Kung's theological tome entitled On Being a Christian, 702 pages long, did not even include a chapter or even an index entry on prayer. How can you write a book that's 702 pages long on being a Christian without even having a chapter or an index on prayer? When asked later, Kung said he regretted the oversight. He was feeling so harassed by Vatican censors and by his publisher's deadlines that he simply forgot about prayer. Why does prayer rank so high on surveys of theoretical importance and so low on surveys of actual satisfaction? What accounts for the disparity between Luther and Simeon on their knees for several hours and the modern prayer fidgeting in a chair after ten minutes? He goes on to say, everywhere I encountered the gap between prayer in theory and prayer in practice. In theory, prayer is the essential human act, the priceless point of contact with the God of the universe. In practice, prayer is often confusing and fraught with frustration. He goes on to say, my publisher conducted a website poll. 678 people responded, and of the 678, only 23 people felt satisfied that the time that they were spending in prayer was adequate. Everywhere I encountered the gap between prayer and theory and practice. Everywhere. People say one thing, but do another. Advances in science and technology no doubt contribute to the confusion about prayer. In former days, farmers lifted their heads and appealed to brazen heavens for an end to drought. Now we study low-pressure fronts, dig irrigation canals, and seed clouds with metallic particles. In former days, when a child fell ill, the parents cried out to God. Now they call out for an ambulance or phone the doctor. In much of the world, modern skepticism taints prayer. We breathe in an atmosphere of doubt. Why does God let history lurch on without an intervening? 
What good will prayer do against a nuclear threat, against terrorism and hurricanes and global climate change? To some people, prayer seems, as George Buttock put it, a spasm of words lost in cosmic indifference. And he wrote those words in 1942. Prosperity may dilute prayer too. In my travels, I have noticed that Christians in developing countries spend less time pondering the effectiveness of prayer and more time actually praying. The wealthy rely on talent and resources to solve immediate problems and insurance policies and retirement plans to secure the future. We can hardly pray with sincerity, give us this day our daily bread, when the pantry is stocked with a month's supply of provisions. He goes on to say just a couple more things. Increasingly, time pressures crowd out the leisurely pace that prayer seems to require. Communication with other people keeps getting shorter and more cryptic. Text messages, email, instant messaging. We have less and less time for conversation, let alone for contemplation. We have the constant sensation of not enough, not enough time, not enough rest, not enough exercise, not enough leisure. Where does God fit into a life that already seems to be behind schedule? And if we do choose to look inward and bear our souls... Therapists and support groups now offer outlets that were once reserved for God alone. Praying to an invisible God does not bring forth the same feedback you would get from a counselor or friends in their presence, who at least nod their heads in sympathy. Is anyone really even listening? As Ernestine, the nasal voice operator played by comedian Lily Tomlin, used to ask, Have I reached the party to whom I am speaking? Prayer is the skeptic delusion, a waste of time to some. To the believer, it represents perhaps the most important use of time. As a Christian, I believe the latter. Why then is prayer so problematic? The British pastor Martin Lloyd-Jones summed up the confusion of all the activities in which the Christian engages and which, is, which are part of the Christian life. There is surely none which causes so much perplexity and raises so many problems as the activity we call prayer. And now... We have an app for that. Let me ask you a question. Do you pray? I don't know about you, but I have felt for the first time in my life, and let me just kind of preface this just for a moment. The way I grew up, you didn't talk about Satan's fighting you too much in church. That was reserved for other people groups, other churchgoers, the Pentecostals. They talked about the Spirit. We didn't talk about the Spirit. We didn't talk about satanic attacks. That's what they talk about. I don't know about you, but I feel the presence of, of attacks a lot in the last several months. But Satan is at work. And I feel like he'll do whatever he can do to distract, to confuse, to get you down. And if we're not careful and on our knees in prayer and crying out to God... Satan will win the battle. Let me just tell you, God's got the war. But we have got to get back to praying. I shared a little bit a couple weeks ago. Five weeks ago, I made a commitment that I'm going to start praying out loud every week. Just pray out loud. I don't care who listens. I don't care who sees. I don't care what people think. I've been coming over here every Saturday night just praying out, just asking God to do something. And with those prayers have come opposition. I'm just telling you. Satan is putting up an attack. We live in a community where churches are falling apart. 
churches are closing their doors here in Rochester. Two in the last month. Satan is at work. And we have a, a powerful force, a tool to combat Satan's attacks. It's called prayer. Are we doing it? I would venture to say, and I'll put myself in the category, we pray a lot when it comes to taking that moment to pray before we eat a meal. Or maybe for several of you, a few minutes as you get up in the morning. Or maybe for a different select few before you go to bed at night. But what about through the day? What about having some time of prayer where God is being beckoned? I remember the very first night that I prayed out loud throughout this whole auditorium. And then the next day we get flooded, and it's just like God saying, what, really? You really want to take this step? Really? Yes, I do. Because I want to see God do something. Let me just tell you what God's been doing. It's really cool. You haven't heard about these things yet. So we get this flood. And we're down there sucking it up as fast as we can. And guess what? We can't keep up with it. The water just keeps coming. Just keeps coming. And all of a sudden, you realize it's starting to stink downstairs. It smells rotten. And all of a sudden, we have to take the carpet out because the carpet's got mold on it. And we've got to get that out of here. We're going to go to the, you know, Rental companies and get big dehyd, you know, whatever that takes water out of the air and out of the bricks and everything else. We get one of those and we run it. And then you're sitting there thinking, we have no insurance for this. No flood insurance. I don't ever remember having flood. I don't, I don't remember in the last seven years having 16 inches of water out on Calkins Road. Never experienced that in the last few years. Why would we have flood insurance? I think it's kind of what. Philip Yancey was talking about, we rely on insurance policies to help us through all the problems that we face. Guess what? We don't have flood insurance. You know what we have? God. We have God. Let me just tell you what he's been doing. So, I'm talking to the flooring guy at ProSource. And uh, I said, I need an estimate of what it's going to take to replace these things. And he says to me, well, it's this size and this size, and he adds it all up, and it's several thousand dollars. And I look at him and I said, I'm not sure we should order all of it at once. He goes, no, let's just order it all at once. And I looked right at him and I said, you know what, that's a great idea. Because I said, I, and I, my next words were, God's not going to let us down. He'll take care of it. So I ordered it, not knowing where the money was going to come from. And then three hours later, I find out God provided. Someone gave $10,000 towards the need. Isn't that awesome? Now, just so, so, because someone gave ten grand does not mean that we don't have it all covered. You can still give other ten grands if you want to. <laughs> but God works. But it doesn't stop there. So I'm talking to another pastor the night of the the next night after the storm. He goes, "How's it going, Ken?" I said, "Great." Yeah, I said, "Pat, answer." He kind of laughed. He goes, "What's the real answer?" I said, "I'm exhausted." He says, "Up till one in the morning, messing with water, trying to get it out." He goes, "What happened?" I told him the story. He goes, "Oh, he goes, man, I'll be praying for you, brother." 
And I have to be honest, when you're going through a difficult time and you're frustrated and you have some big needs and someone just flippantly says, oh, I'll pray for you, what goes through your minds? Big whoop. Let's be honest. Does it not? It's easy to say. It's a trite statement. Praying for you. This pastor went back to his church, shared the story. Then they met with their deacons. And then he calls me back Tuesday morning as I'm at Platten's, and I step outside. He goes, Ken, we met with our deacons. We're going to do something. He says, our church has a, ba- a payloader. We have a backhoe. I mean, we have a backhoe. We have all this stuff. We have guys that work, do this for a living. He says, we're going to help you whether it's putting the swell in the back or whether it's whatever we need to do, we're going to help you. And he said, we have some funds for you too. Another church who just says, we're going to help. And then another church, Friday at uh, prayer, another church in the area says, we have $500 in a building fund. We're not going to be able to use it. You're going through some building needs. We're going to give it to you. And by the way, the projector up on the back screen puked. And uh, he goes, you couldn't use a projector, could you? Yes, we could use one, as a matter of fact. And another church is giving us, or letting us borrow their scissor lift. So I don't have to put up scaffolding, eight million pieces and parts, and it goes I think we should. That could be another fundraiser. Where's Becca? That could be another fundraiser. (laughs) You know what? Let the problems come. Because it's opportunity for God to work. And when God works, he's glorified. And so many people get to hear the story of what God is doing. Over and over, God is working. He is good. Think about that. Look at the text here. Luke chapter 18. Now he told them a parable on the need for them to pray always and not to give up. And there was a judge in a certain town who didn't fear God or respect people. And a widow in that town kept coming to him saying, Give me justice against my adversary. And for a while he was unwilling But later he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or respect people, yet because this widow keeps pestering me, I will give her justice so that she doesn't wear me out by her persistent coming. Then the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. Will not God grant justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay helping them? I tell you that he will swiftly grant them justice. Nevertheless, When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? That's a loaded text of Scripture here. And if we're not careful, you can kind of pick and choose a couple verses out of this text that say, well, just keep praying. Woo! Got it. Let's go home now. We got the message. But think about it just for a moment. Look at verse 8. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? And I think this is kind of a conclusion to what he's saying in the previous chapter, beginning with verse 20. So if you would, look back at the previous chapter, beginning of verse 20. And really, the title about this is talking about the coming of the kingdom. 
And in verse 20, he says, Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming with something observable. In other words, if the only thing you're looking for is all these major events, you're going to miss what God is really doing. Because their mind and their focus was on, well, eventually somebody's going to come, they're going to take down this government, and, you know, the Romans are going to be destroyed, and King Jesus is going to be on the throne, and blah, 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 blah. And he says, if all you're looking for is these major observable events, you're going to miss what, he's going to, what God is actually doing. If the only way of recognizing his kingdom is these signs. Then verse 21 says, no one will say, see here or there, for you see the kingdom of God is in your midst. And some of your trances say within you, and I don't believe that's actually absolutely correct, because he's talking to Pharisees, and they didn't have the spirit within them. He said, the kingdom is in the midst here. It's already happening. So don't look for the major signs, because you're going to miss what I'm actually doing. And verse 22 says, then he told the disciples, the days are coming when you will long to see one of the days of Son of Man, but you won't see it. They will say to you, see there or see there, don't follow or run after them. Don't just look for the catastrophic signs of this may be what God is doing. It says verse 24, For as the lightning flashes from the horizon to horizon and lights up the sky, so the Son of Man will be in, this, in his day. But first, it is necessary that he suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Let me ask you a question. Do we live in a generation that is rejecting Jesus? All around us, it's happening. Now think about this in this next section of verses here, verse 26 and following. It says, just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. People went on eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day of Noah boarded the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. It will be the same as it was in the days of Lot. People went on eating, drinking, buying, selling, planting, building. Now think about that. Just stop right there. Let me give you the broad umbrella of, what of everything he just announced. The people were really, really, really busy. Is that not our day? I mean, if I just had a little bit more time, I could. If I had a few more hours in the day, I would. I mean, if I just had a couple more days in the month, I could plan. Is that not the day that we live in? And let me just tell you, it's not just the fact that Sodom and Gomorrah was filled with homosexuality. There was a lot of other stuff going on, too. In fact, I just read it. People went on eating, drinking, buying, selling, planting, building. In fact, in this passage, he doesn't even mention the other. It was extreme busyness taking place all around them. In verse 29, but on the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. You remember the story of what took place with Lot's wife? Another just broad umbrella. Guess what she didn't want to do? Leave what was behind her. Unless you just think it was just an idea of looking back and saying one more last look just for good measure. That's not the circumstance. 
the circumstance, literally, when you look at the geography, you look at the maps, you look at everything that took place, and you put it in the context of what has taken place here, Lot's wife went and left the city. And as she got so far, she decided that she needed to go back one more time. So she left the traveling party, traveled back, and what does God's word tell us? She turned to a pillar of salt. She didn't want to leave life as she knew it. What a startling thought to consider for all of us. You see, we've been so programmed to think that one day God is going to sound the trumpet, and he will, but we're going to look for all these major catastrophic things. And yet God's word reminds us that he'll come as a thief in the night. You know what's amazing about that? Is that if we knew when a thief was going to come, guess what? We'd be waiting. All right, tonight's the night. 3.07 in the morning, he's coming. Come on, guys, let's get ready. We're going to hear a little fidgeting outside the window, and then all of a sudden we're going to pop out and say, Whoo! You know, when does that ever happen? See, a thief comes when you don't expect it to happen. When you're not thinking about it. Perhaps even when you're away. And it's the last thing on your mind. It's when a thief comes. He does his little searching out and finds out nobody's home and he finds a way to get in and boom. Done. And yet God's word reminds us the Son of Man will come as a thief in the night. Oh, but if we knew when he was going to come, we'd get, our some, we'd get some things in order. I mean, if we knew when Christ was going to come, I mean, we could... Make sure that we shared the gospel with our friends and neighbors and coworkers and especially our relatives. I mean, if we knew that we had that window of this is when he's going to come, we would just get on top of it all and take care of business and get it all done, wouldn't we? Would we? I mean, we'd just set the house in order if we knew when it would happen. But guess what? We don't know when it's going to happen. As a thief in the night. So many scriptures that talk about this. And not only that, we don't know when we're going to die. Proverbs 27 one says, Boast not yourself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. None of us has those guarantees. But verse 29 says, But on that day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be like that on the day the Son of Man is revealed. On that day... A man on the housetop who, whose belongings are in the house must not come down to get them. Likewise, the man who is in the field must not turn back. Remember Lot's wife? Whoever tries to make his life secure will lose it. And whoever loses his life will preserve it. What is it that we value? What is it that is most important to us as people? We could... Fill the gamut of all kinds of stuff. Our houses, our bank accounts, our family, our fill in the blank. He says, don't worry about that stuff. He says, I tell you, on that night, two will be in one bed and one will be taken and the other one will be left. 
Two women will be grinding grain together. One will be taken, the other left. Where, Lord, they asked him, he said to them, where the corpse there also, where the corpse is, there also the vultures will be gathered. What's he saying here? Will you be ready? Will you be ready? And then he comes into chapter 18 and verse 8 says, Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Will he find faithful people who are consistently living for the glory of God? How do we, how do we stay faithful to the end? I think that's where the parable comes in. Keep praying. Keep praying. How can we stay faithful to the end? You keep in a spirit of prayer towards God. So he comes into chapter 18. Now he told them a parable on the need for them to pray always and not to give up. Let's be honest. 1 Thessalonians reminds us, he says, pray without ceasing. Does that mean that from the time I get up in the morning to the time I go to bed, I just, I mean, I can't even go to work. I gotta pray. Sorry, I gotta pray. No. What it means is you have to be in a spirit of prayer. So no matter what happens throughout the day, we can be talking with God and bringing things before the throne and submitting things to God and however He wants to work and however He chooses to work through them. Pray always and don't give up. How many of us have given up on prayer? Let me ask this question. I've asked this before in recent weeks. When's the last time you saw answered prayer? When's the last time you saw answered prayer? Let's be honest. Let's really put it down to brass tacks where the rubber meets the road. When's the last time you saw answered prayer in your life? Not somebody you knew, not somebody you heard about, but your life. When's the last time God has answered prayer in your life? If there's no answered prayer, we have to ask why. Maybe it's because we're not praying. Maybe, as it James says, we're praying out of a wrong motive. Maybe we're praying without faith believing. Hebrews 11 says that they that come to God must believe that he exists and he rewards them that diligently seek him. Maybe we just don't believe that he really exists. He's just some nebulous being that somebody talks about and, well, I really just don't see the value of it. Why isn't God answering prayer? If we're not seeing answered prayer, we have to ask why. Have we given up? uses this story of a judge in a certain town and people take this all kinds of different ways. Some say that's not what he's saying, that is what he's saying. You argue with God. But verse 2, he says, there was a judge in a certain town who didn't fear God or respect people. He's basically saying, listen, I don't, I don't, I don't care about God, I don't care about people, I do what I want, I'm the judge. But there's a situation, this lady, she's nagging me. She's pestering me. She's bothering me. And if I don't do something before long, the word's going to get out that there's this woman who's bothering me and I'm just turning my back on her. I don't really care about her. The word's going to get out. and I, I don't want that reputation, but I don't care about God. I don't care about people. I might as well just do something to shut her up. It's kind of what's happening here. It says, even though I don't fear God or respect people, yet because this widow keeps pestering me, I will give her justice so that she doesn't wear me out and he has the idea of getting a bad reputation for not doing anything. But then verse 6 happens. Then the Lord said, Listen to me what the unjust judge says. 
Will not God grant justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? He's not like the judge who's doing it out of, I don't want to be bothered anymore. He's not like the judge who says, I don't care about people or God. I just want a bad reputation. Here's a God who loves us and cares for us. Unlike the judge, he says, I want to take care of you. He says, will not God grant justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay helping them? There's that rhetorical question we talked about in Sunday school this morning. Will he not do this? Well, of course he will. He's God. In Romans chapter 8, verse 31 says, What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He did not even spare his own son, but offered him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. And he goes on to tell us just how much he loves us. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He also is at the right hand of God and he intercedes for us. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Can any of these things separate us from the love that God has for us? No, that's why we keep going to him. We, he never wearies of us coming to him. As it is written, because of you, we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's his love towards the elect. That's what he does for us. So he says, will not God grant justice to his elect to cry out to him day and night? Will he delay helping them? I tell you that he will swiftly grant them justice. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith, find faith on the earth? Question. How do we pursue to the end? How do we stay faithful to the end? We keep a close, tight relationship with the Lord. He's in control of everything that happens anyway, right? Does he not, is he not in control of everything? Do we forget that? He's powerful. He knows exactly what he's doing. I want to just challenge us this morning. How's your prayer life? How's your walk with God? How's your relationship with him? Are you seeing him at work? If not, you have to ask why. I'm just amazed at what he's doing. Just this morning I said that I see two or three prayer requests. A couple of few weeks back I said, Lord, give us a new family. Just give us one new family. I'm not asking for ten. I'm asking for one. Just one new family, God. And I'm going to trust you to bring one new family in. He did that. And week two I asked for another new family. I said, God, give us another new family. God, please, give us just one more family. I'm trusting you to bring one more new family in. And he did that. But I noticed something. The first family didn't come back. So week three, I said, Lord, that new family that came last week, bring them back again this week. 
God, I'm trusting you that you're going to work and you're going to put upon their heart a desire to be here and you're going to bring them back, God. I'm trusting you for this. And that second new family came back. God works. I think sometimes we just don't trust them to. So last night, I prayed again that that second new family would come back again. God answered prayer. And by the way, let me just tell you, prayed through every one of the men in our list last night. Praying for you guys as men. That God would work in your hearts. That God would help you to be holy, righteous men. That God would give you the wisdom to raise your families and to encourage your children and grandchildren. Prayed for every one of you. Because I want to see God do something through our church. I thank God for all of you that have been working so hard around the church. I praise God for that. I'm so thankful that I don't have to do everything as a pastor. That we can work together. So last night I prayed through everybody I could possibly think of who have done something in the last couple weeks to put this church back in order, the facility. So going around this room, I prayed for almost every one of you that God would just continue to bless you for your faithful service to him. God's answering prayer. I'm just going to tell you, if you don't pray, you won't see him do anything. You won't. And if you don't expect him to, you won't be disappointed. But several weeks, I said, several weeks ago, I said, let's pray that God will help us take another step. Whatever that step looks like. I, I'm not putting words in God's mouth of what he's going to do. It has to do. I just want to see God move. I want to see him do something. That's what we need to see. See God at work. And folks, if God comes tomorrow and finds us faithful, wonderful. We get to join Len. And a host of other people have gone on before us. How, 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 how bad can that be? Let's go. But if God tarries, let's pray faithfully to the end that God would continue to show us his power and his presence. Let's pray that way. So here's how I want to close the service this morning. Just a simple challenge to pray. Let's pray.